Hello and welcome to the Recon Ride, the race preview show from the Velo News Podcast. I'm Dane Cash. And I am Cosmo Catalano. And yeah, you just heard from us last week, but uh, I promise there's a good reason that we're podcasting again. We've still got one major cobbled classic left. Some people even call it the uh, queen of the classics. Indeed. Of course, we're talking about Perry Roubaix. That's what we're here for, to preview the Hell of the North. This race has a lot of nicknames, by the way. Uh, it's the grand finale of the Cobbled Classics. Cosmo and I are going to dive into the parkour. We're going to break down who the big contenders are. We're going to hear from a few people who will be involved in the action on Sunday. And then we're going to give you a few predictions for how we see things shaking out. As much as we highlighted last week how, how big a deal Flanders is, I, I think Roubaix probably has a, a higher level of prestige or similarly high level of prestige within the, within the sport. Uh, it's certainly a lot easier than Flanders to explain to the casual viewer because uh, the roads are so brutal and people get so just dirty and beat up by this event. With the Tour of Flanders, it's such a thing in Flanders. It's a national holiday sort of sort of day where you go out and everybody's out there enjoying the bike race. French local hype is not as intense necessarily as at the Tour of Flanders, but the international recognition just as high. And there are many, 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 many fans out on the road. Um, many fans actually out on the road already. You can see them out there on the roads of northern France uh, on the cobbled sectors as teams ride by. A lot of fans go out there to watch them go on the recons and, and take photos. So plenty of hype already building for Roubaix. It's not Flanders, but it is quite close to Flanders, actually. The the race finishes in Roubaix, unsurprisingly. I, I shouldn't say that, actually, because the race does not start in Paris. So I guess maybe it is surprising <laughs> that it does finish in Roubaix. Once, once upon a time. Indeed. Uh, it hasn't started in Paris for quite a while now. Anyway, it starts in, in Compiègne, finishes in Roubaix, which is very close to the Belgian border. So even though we're not technically in Belgium the landscape looks quite similar to the landscape in Flanders uh, and, and the western edge of Wallonia. So not a whole lot of difference in the landscape uh, and obviously plenty of bike racing fans out here as well. Yeah, and they're, I mean, as much as they get clomped together because they're both very big one-day races with roads made out of stone, uh, the races are, are really different. Uh Flanders is is very hilly. Uh, it, it's rare. It happens on occasion that you'll get a guy like Kristoff, who is really kind of categorized more as a sprinter to win. But it's definitely a classics riders race. You know, there's there are uphills. There are very steep sections. You saw the Koppenberg, and Roubaix is just pancake flat. I mean, people race this thing, you know, with fifty four, forty four chain rings. Uh, it's it's Roubaix is 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 just a lot of power, a lot of riding smart, a lot of avoiding crashes. Uh, and all those things are important in Flanders, but uh, the, one of the reasons the Flanders Roubaix double is such a big deal is because the races are so dissimilar. Uh, the you know yes, if you're fit for one, you're probably fit for another, but it's not like it's not like a carbon copy. the The expectation is is not that one rider will be able to win both, and that's why it's such a big deal when it does happen. Yeah, these races are not as dissimilar as say Roubaix and Lombardia, but there is a lot more difference than I think people realize and. With Tour of Flanders, there's a bunch of run-up races, and and, and if you go to E3 Hollerbeck, you go to Ghent Wevelkam, Dwarsdorf Lander, and I mean even Omlo earlier in the year, yeah, yeah, people are there just constantly talking about the Tour of Flanders, and these are Tour of Flanders tune-up races where riders go and they want to build their form and, and get into that perfect shape and get all their tech all set up ahead of the Tour of Flanders, and they're great tune-up races because they go on these same roads. They take on these cobbled climbs, these these bergs in the Flemish Ardennes, um, 
Paris-Roubaix doesn't really have any good run-up races. There's no mini-Roubaix like there is a mini-Flanders per se. No, none of the, at the highest level, for sure. Uh, and and that's, just, that's just something that makes it unique. There are other cobbled races, but nothing quite like Paris-Roubaix. If you look at the profile, I, mean, I, I think that looking at a race profile is typically very informative. If you're trying to figure out in the Tour de France, for instance, oh, is this going to be a sprint stage or a breakaway stage, a mountain stage? If you look at the profile, typically you can get a pretty good sense of that. If you look at the Roubaix profile, it won't really tell you anything at all because it's just flat. <laughs> there's, there's just There are no climbs at all on the entire parkour. And there's pretty much no other race on the calendar as exciting as Roubaix that has this profile. The, the, profile or the, the ratio of excitement to gradients is pretty high because there's just nothing on the profile that would make you think it's exciting. And yet... It's one of the most fascinating races of the year and one of the most unpredictable races. Uh, I think the, the, the cobbles themselves are very different from Flanders even. And that's a big difference too. Not only is it flat, the cobbles are way harder in Roubaix. Yeah, there's, there's a great quick Chris Horner quote about Roubaix versus Flanders. And you know he basically says, Flanders, this is a road. Yeah, it's made out of rocks, but it's a road. He's, and goes on to compare the... The roads in Roubaix is someone flying over in a helicopter over a freshly plowed farm field and just dropping rocks. Like that's, you know, this is the sort of thing that bad mountain bikers would complain about not having flow if it were a mountain bike trail. And I mean, Dane, you're there. What is What does it look I, like? I am. I'm glad you brought that up, Kazo, because I was out on an, on an actual recon ride before recording <laughs> this figurative recon ride podcast. I got to see the cobbles firsthand today. Uh, EF Education First Draft Pack was generous enough to offer up a seat in one of their cars during the team's pre-Roubaix recon ride, uh, which means I got to bounce around on the car for uh, Mazan Povel earlier today. And I can officially confirm to you, this is a big scoop here, that the roads are very bumpy. Uh, it is it is pretty uncomfortable bouncing around on those cobbles. Um, more generally, though, yeah, the cobbled sectors, they're way rougher in Roubaix than in Flanders because the stones themselves are rougher and they're bigger. Uh, I, I think Horner's Horner's right on point. I mean, it, it's more like riding over rocks that are just jutting out of the ground than being on a road that is especially bumpy. And when you're in Flanders, you can see, oh yeah, this is a road. When you're in Roubaix, you're just you're bouncing all over the place, and and it's really really hard. I think to to get that power that you're used to putting into the pedals on pretty much any other road. There's no climbs, but it's just. It's just so much harder to, to get your bike over these cobbles without falling over. And falling over quite, well, I mean, it happens quite a lot, unsurprisingly. Uh, I, yeah, so I was out there today, and I'm kind of glad that I got to see them because I've been here once before uh, at, at Perry-Roubaix, and I saw the cobbles, and they were dry, uh, not so dry today. And that makes things a little bit different. And it's important to note that this, you know, this soil is is... The whole area in northern France is very low. It's very flat. Uh, it's it's one of the reasons it got the name Hell of the North was apparently because when people were touring the area after World War One, it was just so torn up and wrecked from invading armies and trench warfare. And uh, you have this low, I guess, high water table, and you have this history of coal mining. And when things get wet, it's just greasy and slick and it sticks to everything uh so the weather can have a huge impact on this event yeah and uh it's still you know a little early to say anything about what's going to happen sunday but having been out there today and seen just how muddy these roads are it's going to play a role i think uh more on that in a bit because we're going to talk about the parkour here before we do let's 
I mean, what happened last year? That's a pretty good place to start, I think, uh, in terms of trying to figure out what this race is all about. What are, what are we coming off of? What happened in the 2017 edition? Uh, well, there was not a how the race was won for this, uh, sadly. Well, that's what we're here for today is to tell people <laughs> firsthand from the man who does those videos. What what was it? How was that race won, Cosmo? It was a drier year. Uh, it was won by groups making selections and uh, Greg Van Avermet being the fastest guy in the eventual selection at the end of that race. Uh, which is wild when you think about the group chasing him down just 12 seconds behind containing both Arnaud Demar and Andre Greipel. Uh, we came pretty close to seeing the closest thing to a group sprint I've seen in Roubaix in quite some time, although Degen Kolb's win was pretty similar. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was, I, I, it was, I would say it was almost notable for its, for its lack of carnage, especially after, uh, that surprise win from, uh, Maddie Heyman. Yeah, 2017's edition was uh, Van Avermaet's first monument win ever, actually. And he looked really good all classic season that year. Didn't win Flanders, came back and kind of made up for it with a big Roubaix win. Uh, the dryness, it was still a pretty gritty race in, in, in the dry weather. But uh, man, with, with some mud on the cobbles, it, it's going to change things up a little bit. So let's get into that here. Let's talk about this route. All right, so Paris-Roubaix, it's a 257-kilometer race. As we discussed earlier, it's flat. The metrics don't really tell the whole story, though. I mean, the, the, what this race is really about are the cobbled sections, and there are officially 29 of them. I think it's 54.5 kilometers in full of cobblestones throughout the whole 257-some-odd-kilometer uh, race. That's, a, that's a, about a fifth of the race. Yeah, there it's... Also important that they're heavily end loaded. Uh, there's there's a lot more cobbles towards the end of the race than at the beginning, um, and there is because the ASO loves to classify things a uh, rating section for the cobbles between one and I believe five stars uh, operates the reverse of the HC climb system. So five stars is the most bony, and one is one star is generally like regular pavement. Uh, the, I believe the final official sector is in the town of Roubaix, and it, it... It is a nominally cobbled section. A nominally cobbled section, exactly. You know, as iconic as the cobbles are at Paris-Roubaix, the race actually finishes on a very smooth surface, the Roubaix Velodrome. So after the uncomfortable and, and bumpy, you know, six hours-ish ride, the contenders will roll around the Velodrome in front of some very excited fans, by the way, to close out the race... Uh, so if you come into the finale with a group, you're going to need to be handy in a sprint. Uh, but the cobbles are what, what they're what make Roubaix so unique. Uh, typically, it's the cobbled sectors that decide the race, so it's worth digging a bit deeper there, I think. Uh, as you pointed out, most of the tougher cobbled sectors are later on in the afternoon. Uh, things really ramp up the difficulty as, as Roubaix goes on. In the first 90k, there's pretty much nothing going on. And then the cobbles come, and there's not a lot of breaks in between the cobbles. Uh, and, and although there are some tougher sections early on, it definitely picks up there towards the end. Uh, I, I think the, the hard stuff really starts, though, with the Arenberg. Yeah, Arenberg is, is the classic five-star. It's not super tactical, but it is very easy to lose the race here, usually by, crack, uh, usually by crashing and breaking something. Kneecap, femur, all have happened uh, it's yeah. Uh, after that, you'll have a real kind of resorting of the race, and then we get into the the later sectors where you really see riders kind of push on, try try an attack on the cobbles, kind of see who's there, and then maybe push it and try to go solo. Yeah, the uh, 
the, the five star sections that follow the uh, the Arenberg Trench are Monzon Pavel and the Carrefour de Labre, and those are the two uh, you know the, the really really hard sectors of cobblestones that remain in the race. But really, almost any one of these sections is very challenging, and the star ratings, uh, you know, they, they rate the cobbles themselves, the surfacing of the cobbles themselves. But like I said, I think there's a possibility, especially in the last like 50K or so, of any one of these cobbled sectors providing a launching pad. Because if you get away on a two-star sector, there's going to be a three-star or four-star sector in the next 5K anyway. So there's definitely an opportunity in pretty much any one of these to get clear. But yeah, the, the Arenberg, the Mazan Pavel, and the Carrefour, I mean, those are the three classic, most challenging sectors. I was at all of those today uh, on that recon with EF, and uh, first of all, the Arenberg Trench, it's already probably the most brutal and iconic of, of the Roubaix cobblestones, but because there are trees lining the road, uh, the sun has not really burned off any of the rain that has collected on this road over the last several days, and it's been raining quite a lot. We're still a little ways out from the race, and conditions can change between uh, now and then, but things were pretty gnarly during the recon. Uh, and so for more on that recon ride, I chatted with New Zealander pro Tom Scully yesterday mid-recon, uh, and actually if you listen closely, you're going to hear a second uh, Oceania accent in there. Uh, Mitch Docker about two feet away when Tom and I were having this chat while the EF mechanics were making some tire pressure adjustments. There's also a barking dog in there somewhere. Because we're, we're that committed to giving you the authentic experience of the sounds of the French countryside. Anyway, here's Tom Scully. How many times have you done, Ruby? Um, this will be my second, um, plus one under 23, so. Okay. But it's kind of half distance, but. Yeah. What, uh, what's a recon give you that you don't, that you don't get at the race? Um, everything you need to know. So you've got peace of mind for race day. Yeah. Um, equipment checking. Tires, pressures, wheels, handlebars, tapes, saddles, the lot, you know. Also, too, you know, direction, what way the wind's going to be coming, what the conditions are, what the feel of the cobbles are like. It's almost like uh, you just you ingrain it into your minds when you do the recon so that when you're on race day, it's just like playing a movie. What's your take so far been on, on the cobbles and the state of the cobbles right now? Um, I've definitely never seen them like this before. Um, in some of the conditions, it's pretty sloppy. Um, yeah. And you've got to be extra cautious there on those wet conditions because it's it's a bit like ice, you know. If you get your wheels a little bit off centre or offline, it's, they tend to just wash out sideways. So um, it's definitely going to be something to consider, and, and you know it's going to be wet. And, but if it is wet like it is now, um, it's going to be a bit slower. But yeah. with the yeah, we'll have to see. Uh, that was EF's Tom Scully in the middle of the. Team's Roubaix recon, as he pointed out, things looking pretty gross out there, again, as of Thursday. So right now, the Arenberg Trench is extremely muddy. Uh, the cobbles are already disgusting. They're already bone-rattling. But now the, the whole Arenberg Trench is just muddy. And, and, and so riding along the, the, the road, you can kind of barely see the cobbles at some points because they're just so covered with mud. Uh, and that's true of a couple other cobbled sectors as well. Uh, some of the sections are today, for instance, that that were rated two or three uh, stars on the ASO's rating, because of the mud, it's it's a totally different story. You can hardly even see the road, and that makes things just way, way more challenging. Uh, it's going to slow the race down a little bit in those sectors. It's also going to lead to way more crashes 
Uh, and it, it's also, I think it's just going to make things a little bit more open because the guys who are classically good at riding on these cobblestones, who have these huge engines, might not be as comfortable uh, in this slippery mud, uh, which which is something that we really haven't seen at Paris-Roubaix in, in a, a decade or more. Uh, we've had uh, dry Paris-Roubaix for quite a while. So these muddy sections, especially the Arnberg, which is extremely nasty right now, and some of the later sections, which are already challenging enough, uh, definitely going to be pretty hard. And yeah, Manzon Pavel and the Carrefour are not quite as muddy um, as I would have expected when I was on them today, given the mud in some of the other sectors, but still quite hard. And uh, just generally, if you've never been on them before, they really live up to that five-star rating. It is a bumpy, bumpy ride. Uh, and you also, when you get off of those sections, there's no, you don't pull off the car for and say, oh, you know, get to rest and relax a little bit. No, <laughs> you have to get onto another cobbled section moments later. Uh, it's like less than half a kilometer after you're done with the car for, there's another cobbled sector. And then after that one, you have a little bit of a break and then another cobbled sector. So it's just constant, constant bone rattling on these cobbles. Uh, it's this kind of thing that really favors huge engines and people who can handle their bikes well, obviously. And that's really the kinds of riders who quite often win the race. One other thing about the route is because it's so flat, uh, it can be wind susceptible, uh, susceptible to wind. I don't know how to properly phrase that. Anyway, the the route more or less goes in the same direction, kind of north, northwest most of the day. But there are, because you're in these farm fields, 90 degree corners all over the place, uh, just you know how the the farmland property lines up and it can be extremely decisive even on the non cobbled sections uh if you get a small group that 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 gets organized that gets a good rotation and they come around that corner uh and then there's a bigger group that can't form an echelon on these tiny roads that you know can be 20 30 seconds over the course of a kilometer so always keep an eye on those roadside flags when you're watching this event yeah, in the recon today, uh, the, the sports director, Andreas Clear of uh, EF was... AKA GPS Clear. Yeah, a very well-earned nickname because he, he really does know every single inch of the road. And to your point about the wind, every stretch of cobbles. I mean, this guy knows exactly where the wind's going to come from. And he's telling the guys, okay, and as we take a turn here, the wind's going to be from here. And then it's going to be this and that. So the wind is is crucial to the race. And it's, it's on the DS's minds because... When you know what's coming in terms of wind, then you can really plan out your attacks a little bit in advance. Uh, the cobbles, the wind, the mud, they're all going to play a part. Uh, it's It might rain on Sunday even to add to the mud that's already out there. So, look, right now the weather is the big unknown. I mean, even if it doesn't rain, there could still be mud in some sectors. And then if it does rain, well, that's going to make for a wild race. Honestly, I wouldn't mind a bit of mud. You know, having been on those roads uh, for the recon, oof. You got to feel for the for the riders, but uh, as a spectator, eh, it sounds pretty darn fun to watch. So let's move on now to talk about the big contenders for the 2018 Paris Roubaix. We mentioned how that it can be a little bit unpredictable. Uh, it's a race that, in the past, there have been a number of years where you've seen the same stars dominating. The Tom Bonins and the Fabian Conchilaris, both of those guys won plenty of Paris-Roubaix. 
It's also a race that Matt Heyman has won. Johan van Summeren has won. Uh, years that uh, kind of surprise people. Uh, Heyman in particular was a, was a stunner, really. I mean, the guy has won, I believe, one World Tour bike race in his career. It happens to be Paris-Roubaix. So this is a race where on any given day, you know, 10 of the top contenders can happen to crash out or puncture. It's, it's that brutal out on the cobbles. So it's pretty hard to predict, which makes this kind of fun, I have to say. I mean, it makes it, uh, makes it enjoyable going into the race and not really knowing what the heck's going to happen. Uh, I will say that much like last week at the Tour of Flanders, one team has certainly emerged as the favored team, uh, although they have a number of riders who could possibly contend. Yeah, that team is Quickstep, and I'm actually curious what the odds of Quickstep versus the rest of the field are in this. Uh, they're so good, and they've been riding... Somebody commented, they've been riding almost better without Tom Bonin, without this this superstar you know, always kind of in their back pocket. They, they've really, they haven't had situations where they've ended up with a guy they don't actually think can win the race in a break to, to keep Tom from having to work behind. Like they've just, they, they function really well. Uh, we saw it last week at, uh, at Flanders where we saw Nicky Terpster win Flanders basically the same way he won Roubaix. Uh, we saw Yves Lampere, uh, who has traditionally been a, uh, domestique, but he won a race earlier this, this spring. Like in the closing stages of the event, putting out big sprints to get to corners first to slow the rest of the field down. Uh, we saw Stebar attacking like a madman. It just really is a kind of pick a rider situation, especially at a race like Roubaix, especially if it turns out to be muddy, because you have that situation where you might have a Matty Heyman style guy in the lead break, kind of saving his matches while the favorites try and figure out what they're going to do behind. Uh, and, you know, Quickstep just has this stable of massively strong guys who are going to show out for this event. I think my favorite out of the group is Stebar, just because his performances have been good recently. But, yeah, it's so hard to pick a favorite from this team. Yeah, they, they have so many options between Stebar, Gilbert, Terpstra, Lampar. Yeah, it's good you brought up Stebar specifically, though, because Villa News's Andy Hood chatted with the former cross-world champ this week. Here's Andy talking to Zdenek about Roubaix. Sidenik Stibar, um, can you just tell us how your first memory is of Rope? When did you first see the race and when did you imagine that perhaps you could be racing in it? Oh, it will be some long time ago. Uh, I can't really say a year or when it was. I just remember that uh, yeah, I was amazed how, yeah, what a race it is actually because of course, yeah, you know, in, in Czech Republic it was not really a culture of, uh, of cycling. So it was also not those races really every time on television, but uh, yeah, still like uh, I remember when I when I did first time the reckon of cobbles, um, I was so nervous. I just didn't know what to expect. I remember I suffered so much together with my teammates because they went just flat out on the first training. And I was like, damn, this race is not for me. <laughs> and uh, and then, yeah, on my first Roubaix, I, yeah, if I didn't have the accident with the photographer, then probably I was sprinting for the first podium, for the, for the podium place. So that was, uh, that was quite pity, but yeah, it's, and since then, yeah, the race is in my heart. Is it a race that you most want to win of, your, of the races across the calendar? Uh, of, uh, absolutely, it's a Roubaix and Tour of Flanders. Uh, yeah, I was closest uh, by Roubaix, and uh, yeah, it's. I think now the shape is good, so 
Flanders I will not win anymore this year. Uh, so I hope for that. Uh, so far you've looked very strong in the races, but the dynamics, you really haven't had a chance to show it. Is that frustrating or is that just the way the team works? It's how it is. I mean, yeah, we are winning as a team and uh, um, I think if, yeah, if one of us was bit weaker then probably we didn't win so much as we did so everybody is really on very high level and that's uh, that's why it works so good because yeah like of course when yeah someone of us is going make an attack or is just present in any breakaway in front or behind yeah it's it's much easier to race for us and until now we didn't really make uh, any any mis any tactical mistakes so yeah it was just lovely to race like this yeah, it's gonna be fun how has how the team changed now that Bonin is no longer the center is that kind of perhaps the reason why this year the team is more aggressive or more racing more more freedom no I wouldn't I wouldn't say because uh, with Tom we did the same but this year it's yeah it's just it's just working it's it's just I think it's also yeah always the same team you know already from the beginning and everybody really giving 100% and I think it's also because let's say yeah we want just that someone of us win and it doesn't matter who and I think that's the secret of the success probably because I think in other teams you have always just one leader and then yeah then, then just the one leader has to work but by us, nobody knows actually who the real leader is. It actually just show up during the during the race, mm. and this is yeah, this is something I think what makes uh, this season for us so unique. And just finally, um, all of the rivals must be desperate now. You know, you see Van Avermaet hasn't won, Seb Van Mark, Sagan hasn't won Roubaix. Do you expect all those guys to race, race more aggressively, or how do you see the dynamics on Sunday? Yeah. I don't know because as more aggressive the race will be, as better for us. So yeah, they can, they should find something out. <laughs> what would you do if you were not racing for quick step? That I would not say. <laughs> <laughs> it's a house secret. House secret indeed. No real motivation for quick step to give away the, their kryptonite. Uh, again, that was Denik Stewart talking to our Andrew Hood. Stebar, one of several options for Quickstep, the, the rider from that team who I think, uh, I don't know, I like him the most for this race out of that team, but boy, they got a, they got a lot of different choices to go with here. Uh, for me, the, the, the question for Quickstep is, are they going to beat themselves? They've, they've managed to not do it through the whole classic season. It's something that they were doing a fair bit of in 2015, 2016, and then in the last two seasons, they've kind of, kind of figured it out. But uh, a little bit uh, curious... If Philippe Gilbert, who really says he wants to win Paris-Roubaix, uh, if maybe he gets a green light for Roubaix uh, because he's been more of a of a lieutenant or a, a co-leader in some of these other races. Because uh, if that happens, I think that that could uh, kind of dent Quickstep's chances. I think he's not perfectly suited for Roubaix. I think Steve R. and Terpster are significantly better suited for this race. And if Quickstep tries to ride for Gilbert anyway... I think that could uh, come back to haunt them. I think it's possible that Philippe Gilbert wins this race, but I also think it's possible that they might squander an opportunity if they decide to ride for Gilbert. They've been saying all for one, one for all. You know, we'll do whatever we think is best, but it wouldn't really surprise me if they kind of go all for Gilbert. I don't think that would be the best plan, so we'll see what they end up doing. 
but if they if they make any mistakes, there are some other riders here. There is the defending champion, for instance, who deserve to be right up there in the conversation, even if the results have not come so easily this season. Greg Van Avermaet has looked strong. He's been in the main groups pretty much every classic. He only has really one podium in the in the big classics, but he's he's never looked bad. He's never looked weak. Uh, he just hasn't really been able to get away and stay away from the peloton. Um, I, I think Roubaix suits him just as well as Flanders. I mean, he's really, really good on the cobbles. You know, Greg Van Avermaet has said that Roubaix suits him less than Flanders, but I think it's pretty close. And I think uh, he might benefit from being, being looked at a little bit less on the Roubaix cobblestones than he is in Flanders, where he's he's always among the huge favorites. So I, I still like Ron Armand's chances, even though he hasn't quite shown us everything this year that he showed us last year. Meanwhile, we have Peter Sagan, who is the odds maker's favorite, and totally understandable, but also completely ununderstandable because he has never done anything at Roubaix. I don't think he's ever finished even in the lead group or or been a primary factor in the late race selections. Uh, yeah, his, his best finish, he was sixth way back in 2014. He finished uh, in the in the group behind Terpstra. Uh, and that, that's the only time he's been in the top 10. Yeah, and it's it's hard to point at any one thing uh, about why he hasn't been good at Roubaix. Historically, he hasn't had super strong teams, but I mean, he's a great mountain biker. Uh, hasn't raced cross like like a Stebar, but that it, it shouldn't be, you know, I, I doubt his bike handling is is the suspect factor here. I think it's just... It's a type of racing that's very different than anything else out there. And uh, you've got guys who grew up in Belgium who are racing this style of race or watching this race and looking at this race and thinking about this race and really getting a feel for it. And then you have a guy like Sagan who's not from Belgium. You know, he he and, and Kwiatkowski came up racing kind of in Eastern Europe against each other. They're both really good riders. But I, I think this is the sort of racing where if you don't have that early experience, it's extremely hard to pick it up later in life. Yeah, I think it's sort of like Gilbert with no climbs. That That's a huge part of his skill set is, is his ability to power away on the shorter climbs uh, and, and then out sprint people. And I think with no climbs, he's just not able to use that skill set here. I don't think he's necessarily bad at Paris-Roubaix. I just think that one of his main assets doesn't really come into play, a lot like Philippe Gilbert. So I think that's a part of it. Uh, this race is just, it's all about riding the cobbles. Uh, one guy, by the way, who knows how to ride the cobbles, even if he hasn't quite gotten that big result, everybody has expected of him for years. Of course, Seth Van Marka. We heard from him during the Tour of Flanders show. You know, he was at at the Tour of Flanders. We we sort of jokingly talk about every year how something bad's going to happen to Van Marka. Uh, mechanical, a puncture, a crash. Pretty much every one of those things happened to him at Flanders this year. It's just a recurring theme. The poor guy constantly gets hit by this this uh, wave of, of unfortunate circumstances, seemingly every major race. And last week, pointing at his back wheel when the brake went. Like, Yeah, it's tough to watch. Right, right when it, you could think of, of no worse moment, that's exactly when the, the misfortune strikes for Sepp van Marke. But he does have that immense engine and rides the cobblestones really well. Uh, Roubaix, I think, suits him just as well as Flanders. He's a guy that you should watch. As long as he gets to the finale with the, with his bike intact, he's he's a guy who can win the race. And one thing I think it's really worth pointing out about Van Marke that people maybe forget about or, or gloss over. Everybody says, well, he needs to win alone because he's never going to out-sprint anybody. And I think it's a little bit unfair to Sepp Van Marke because he can out-sprint a lot of people. He just can't out-sprint Peter Sagan or Greg Van Avermaet. 
Uh, Probably not Steve Barr either. Well, he can't out-sprint Mark Cavendish or Marcel Kittle <laughs> for that matter. But he could certainly out-sprint a number of the other contenders in this race. It's just that every year he's been up there, there's been a better sprinter. He's still, I think, a guy who could come in with a small group and win a, a sprint, just as long as Peter Sagan's not there. Uh, but I don't necessarily think he needs to go 25K out solo. He doesn't have to pull a, a bone-in going 50K. Uh, you know, he doesn't have to pull a Terpster last week. He can get in there with a small group. Uh, it just needs to not include Peter Sagan, basically. Uh, and then he's at least got a chance. Uh, he's also got a nice team with uh, Sebastian Langeveld looking really good. A guy who was on the podium this race last year. It's been a while since there's been a one-two punch with Van Marcus. So those are two good riders uh, for EF this year. And, and, you know, this is a chance for them, as good a chance as they've had so far. Uh, just hopefully for Van Marka, you, you kind of have to hope he doesn't have a puncture or a crash. It's, it's really hard to see that stuff, considering how often it's happened. It, it's important to note too that the the slipstream entity that uh, that is currently EF Education First Draypack has performed pretty well at this race. Langeveld was third here last year. Langeveld was also very active last week. Uh, but the, you know, Van Summeren won this race, and they've got that knowledge that that Andreas Clear brings. Like I I think this is slipstreams or uh, EF's strongest event uh, as far as the world calendar goes, and so I think Van Mark has that in his favor as well. Yeah, little little organizational knowledge that they're bringing from from years past, I think, into this race, and a lot of talent as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oliver Nassen, another one of those big cobblestone grinders who kind of like Van Marka, he's just he really thrives on the cobbles. He's proven really resilient. He's been in bad crashes the past couple of weeks, like huge, you know, all across the road crash. He ended up at the bottom of last weekend and still managed to get back, granted with with some team and slipstreaming in the cars, but still got back and was, was you know, ready to go in that, that lead group before Terpster went. And, you know, I, we saw what happened after that. Uh, I, you know, clearly didn't have the team support to take on three quick step guys, but uh, the fact that he was there and ready to go means I think he's going to do well here. Yep, uh, a team that is sort of like Quickstep is trying to go for multiple options, although unlike Quickstep has not had the actual wins. Uh, Trek Segafredo has a guy for a sprint, sort of a guy for an in-between scenario, small sprint, and then a guy who can go long. Uh, we're talking John Degenkolb, who has won this race in the past, Jasper Stuyven, who has been kind of knocking on the door for a couple of years, and uh, Mads Pedersen, who showed up last week with Tour Flanders and just you know, went out and took second place in his in his debut. <laughs> took second uh, place in the least efficient way possible. Yeah, just riding <laughs> like 10 seconds behind Nicky Terpstra for the last 25 minutes of the race. Huge engine on that guy. Uh, they, they have not had the success that Quickstep has had, obviously, but they do have this sort of card for every different scenario uh, approach. And I think it's going to come in handy, especially as these guys continue to develop. So this year, it's going to be tough for them to pull off a win, of course. Certainly possible. But it's certainly in years to come, that trio, very, very promising for Trek Segafredo, which is good because they had Fabian Conchalara for so long that I think it's kind of, for them, it's tough to, to see what, uh, what it's like not, not winning all the time in the classics. But they have, they have some promising guys coming up. There are also sprinters who I almost hesitate to call sprinters uh, because they have the ability to do well in these, these longer one-day races. And I almost feel like... Especially with our no Demar, I kind of want to see him go for it, take that shot. Kristoff uh, is uh, Alexander Kristoff is another guy who I kind of put in this category. But Kristoff uh, won Flanders, and he did win it in a sprint. But it was a you know a two up sprint with Nikki Terpster. Like the guy is very strong, very powerful, uh, and I think Demar is in that same model. And his team 
especially DeMar, FDJ has been riding really well, like really strong, kind of over the past few years, kind of coming to the front as a Peloton driving team. And I think, you know, if if they send DeMar up the road or they get him in a group where it looks like DeMar, they're not holding him back for a sprint, I think a lot of people could write him off and he could get enough time that he could not be chased down and be the first French winner of this race in quite a while, which people would be super stoked about. Dylan Grunewagen, another fast finisher who's on the start list. Uh, Grunewagen is certainly in the last uh, I don't know, eight or nine months, one of the really the hottest sprinters uh, on, the, on the world tour, just been racking up wins. But don't forget that this guy kind of came up uh, as a promising classics talent as well. And he has the ability, I think, to do just fine on these roads if it comes down to a larger group. Uh, Marcel Kittle also in attendance. Certainly worth mentioning because he's Marcel Kittle. Uh, this is not a race that he has done well at in the past. He only has one Roubaix start on his uh, entire career. But uh, he's a sprinter with some power. And in, in, a, you know, in some universe, in some scenario, it's certainly possible that Kittle comes into the velodrome there are not many people in the world who can outsprint Kittle, I think, uh, on a flat surface like that. So you got to mention Marcel Kittle. I, I think it's just going to be interesting to see him out there. It's actually a banked surface, Dan. It's a banked surface. This is true. It is flat as in it is not bumpy like the cobblestones. <laughs> but it is very, very much banked, actually. Uh, that's kind of the key part of the finale, trying to position yourself on the banked velodrome. Uh, also, that team's got Tony Martin, who, you know, if anybody's going to jump off the front and go for 100K, why not Tony Martin? Uh, best of the rest, I'm, we're talking about Edvold Bosenhag, another good rider you got to watch. Uh, Mitchelson Scott, Matt Heyman's back. you got Luke Durbridge on that team, Matteo Trentin. Uh, team Sky with a pretty strong team and a nice showing last week at uh, Tour of Flanders. they got Dylan Van Barla. They've got Luke Rowe. They've got Gary Thomas parachuting in for Perry roubaix uh, Ian Stannard, Johnny Moscone. A lot of really talented riders on this team. With Gary Thomas, they have kind of a wild card, just like Kwiatkowski last week at uh, Tour of Flanders. Bit of a wild card there. Not really sure what to expect from him. Uh, E3 winner. E3 winner, though. That's right. The the first year I was here. And you correctly predicted that win, I believe, all, I those, did. all those years ago. I did. Yeah, very impressive. That's true. It's no Nicky Terpster at Tour of Flanders, though. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Well, speaking of predictions, you know, we've run down the start list. Let's talk about some of the uh, possible scenarios to finish this race. Want to, want to do a podium here? Yeah, let's do this. I'll take it this time. I'll, I'll lead us off this time. I'm I'm having a really tough time uh, not picking a quick step rider. I'm going to go with Jenik Stebar this time around. Uh, he was uh, he was strong when Nicky Terpster won Flanders last week. He's been strong this whole time, and as we heard, it's his. Uh, I think it's the race he really is best at, and he's been up there in the past. I mean, there was that one year where he was riding in the lead group and ran into a fan. We never really got to see what was going to happen. Uh, what could have happened. So for me, Stebar is uh, really well suited for this race, especially if it gets muddy. Uh, so I'm going to put him on top of the podium. Let's uh, let's toss Greg Van Avermaet up there. I think he's going to be uh, in the mix again. And I'll put Van Marka also on the podium in third. Um, yeah, so I, I guess Stebar is my, my quick step rider of choice this time around. But uh, if it's Florian Seneschal or Tim DeClerc, you know, don't be all that surprised. I'm going to pick Alexander Kristoff. Um, like I said earlier, I think he's a very strong diesely guy. He's been up there in these in uh, he was up there in Flanders. His team support has not been as strong as say Quick Steps or Skies, but also in a race like this, if he feels good, if he has the power, he gets away. People will probably just kind of turn and look at each other uh, just because he is 
this sprintery guy and because he has this not so strong team. And I think that could prove a fatal mistake. Like I said, when I was describing Christoph and Damar, they're guys I really want to see race this not as sprinters because uh, I, I think they've got the power to go ahead. Uh, behind him, I will put Zdenek Sivar in second again. I'm sorry. Uh, and Gianni Moscone uh, in third behind him, leading in a group that forgot to chase Christoph down. So those are their predictions. I think we did a, a pretty good rundown of uh, of the route and the and the favorites. So all that's left now is just to watch the bike race, man. It's on, it's on Sunday. It's the last of the cobbled classics. So you better get your fill because it's going to be another 11 months until we have any cobbled classics again. Uh, it's going to be a good one, I think, especially if the weather's bad. Apologies to the riders. That's going to make things pretty wild. Uh, definitely tune in to catch Perry Roubaix. Villeneuve has multiple reporters on the ground. And uh, we, the Recon Ride, will be back pretty soon for the final monument of the spring, Liege Bastogne Liege. So lots to be excited about in the coming days, but uh, the biggest thing to be excited about, Sunday's race, Paris-Roubaix. Hope you get a chance to watch. This has been the Recon Ride, the race preview show from the Vellon News Podcast. I'm Dane Cash. And I'm Cosmo Catalano. And that's our show. 